Uh, let me just pray for the reading of God's word. Heavenly Father, uh, be with us today. Please be with um, your daughter, our sister Carmita, as she reads your word to your people. Speak through her, Father, and may we feel your presence. May we feel your love, Lord. May we feel the urgency of your kingdom. May we feel these things through the reading of your word. May it be pleasing to you and may it be bring glory to your name. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Carmita. Thank you, Chuck. I will be reading from the book of Acts, chapter 1, verses 13 to 26. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all 120 and said, brothers, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gashed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem that the field was called in the wrong language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own people. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Esta es la palabra del Señor. Amen. Thank you, Carmita. Well, uh, last week we began our year-long journey in this book, uh, in the book of Acts. And today we wrap up the sort of uh, introduction here in chapter one. And when we started last week, I mentioned that this book is one of history, history of the church, history of the followers of Christ post his ascension. But it's also so much more than that. This book is one of revolution. And as opposed to a dry historical text, uh, this book still speaks to us today. And sometimes it speaks to us not uh, in crystal clear ways, not in rosy, hope-filled ways, not in tangible, prescriptive ways, 
but often it speaks to us through hard realities and tough truths. And I think today's passage actually gives us a glimpse of that tension. So the context here, uh, just as a reminder, is that the disciples of Jesus Christ, uh, they were with him, with Jesus, after he had been crucified on the cross, after he rose from the dead, and after he continued to walk the earth and minister for 40 days. And then at the start of Acts, in the opening of this book, he reminds his followers, Jesus reminds his followers, that the kingdom of God is not intended for one people or one nation, but that it will stretch to the ends of the earth. And after this declaration, he ascended, he rose to the heavens, floating on a cloud, and the disciples are reminded then, following this, that Christ will come again, that he will return to the earth. It's a lot that happens in that opening passage. And where our passage ended was that the disciples, uh, with this new experience of witnessing Christ ascend into heaven and being reminded that his kingdom is for all nations— and that he will, in fact, return to earth once more. With all of this, they, uh, they return to Jerusalem. And here we pick up in verse 13 that their return to Jerusalem takes them to what is known as the upper room, uh, the very location that they would have had their last supper with Christ at prior to his arrest and execution. And for the sake of history, for the posterity of this story, Luke, the author of this book, he names the 11 disciples who have gathered in the upper room. So if you put yourself in the shoes of the disciples, this would no doubt be a very holy place, right? A place of great reverence, a place of great sorrow as well. And after all that they had just experienced, likely a place of great hope. Now, we don't know how long they uh, remained in the upper room, but we know that whether it was in that upper room or elsewhere, that this group of 11 disciples actually grew to about 120 people and this group was devoting itself to prayer. And this group is now composed not just of the original disciples, but now the brothers of Christ and Mary, the mother of Jesus, as well as other women. So this is the context. This is the current environment in which we find ourselves. And perhaps the three most telling words of this context, uh, of what is happening, and of the sort of feel for everything right now, are found at the start of verse 15 that we heard Carmita read, in those days, in those days. The days that we are in here in this passage are the 10 days between the ascension of Jesus Christ and the gift, the giving of the Holy Spirit on what we know as the day of Pentecost, which opens Acts chapter 2. And as a sort of teaser, as you might imagine, uh, that's what we will be diving into next week with Pastor Kim. But here, in these days, we are in an in-between, in-between the awe-inspiring, mind-blowing experience of seeing Christ ascend into heaven and the earth-shifting gift and presence of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. We are in-between two monumental experiences. And in this in-between, the bulk of our passage here is dedicated to two things— retelling the story of Judas Iscariot and finding his replacement. Now, Judas is the 12th disciple who is not named in verse 13. Uh, the Judas who is named, Judas the son of James, is a different Judas. Uh, but Judas Iscariot, he's not named because he has betrayed Jesus. Uh, his betrayal of Jesus led to his arrest and execution, 
And Judas is so overwhelmed with guilt and grief for his betrayal, for his actions, that he takes his own life. We see the story in the Gospel of Matthew, and then we get some kind of gruesome details here in the first chapter of Acts. And this in-between phase we're in, I think, is perfectly captured in this entire experience, in the retelling of the story of Judas and in the process of finding his replacement. Now, what do I mean? Well, typically, uh, it's easy to read this passage, to read verses uh, 16 to 20 and just be like, yep, Judas betrayed Jesus for a little extra money. And because of that betrayal, Christ was arrested and crucified. And you can read it like that and just kind of move on. And it's not a misreading. This is literally the story of Judas. But uh, I would encourage us and I would challenge us that we shouldn't merely read this and move on as quickly as it may feel comfortable to do. I think it's important for us to pay attention to who is telling this story. And though Peter is talking and Luke uh, fills in some details as the author, the story really belongs to all the disciples here. And it belongs to them very specifically in this in-between time, in those days. Uh, Willie James Jennings, a professor at Yale who I quoted last week and who you should just get used to hearing because I'll be quoting him uh, for the next year as we study Acts. Uh, Jennings says that what happens here is a sort of freeing of Peter and his fellow disciples because they're placing the burden of betrayal and guilt and shame, the burden of all these things and more, they're placing them on the shoulders of Judas. Judas becomes now the one and only betrayer of Jesus, the one and only failure in ministry with Christ. Jennings explains it like this. He says, nothing good is coming from Judas's legacy. He betrayed Jesus, and therefore now he is the betrayer. The logic is crystal clear. Except, except as Jennings puts it, except this logic, this logic that Peter is using, this is the logic of the before. This is the logic of someone who has not yet experienced the revolutionary power of the Holy Spirit. This is the logic of someone who has shifted all blame, all betrayal to one person who is keeping that one person, Judas, locked in his past with absolutely no hope. This is logic coming from someone who is only beginning to understand what it means that their teacher, their leader, defeated death through his resurrection and 40 days later ascended into heaven. 40 days, that's it. Less than six weeks. I think it's safe to say that, that that's really not enough time, right, to grasp and understand what Christ's resurrection meant. And if you get close to understanding that, then 40 days later, your imagination is completely leveled as this resurrected Christ ascends into heaven. I don't think we can even begin to comprehend how mind-blowing all of this had to have been and how confusing this in-between time had to have been. And so as Peter tells the story of Judas, what, what else does he do? Doing his best to stay faithful to prophecy and to the scripture, he realizes that the disciples have not filled Judas's spot yet, and they need to. But similar to this idea of uh, the logic of the before, Peter doesn't seem to allow the magnitude of what he and the disciples have experienced to shape this process. Uh, Justo Gonzalez, uh, a Cuban scholar and theologian, says that instead of asking himself who could make a better contribution 
to the mission of the disciples, the mission of Jesus Christ. Peter seeks someone who can continue what has been done previously, someone who fits the patterns already established, someone who probably won't challenge the view of those in charge. And Gonzalez says, this is presented to show us the very nature of the book of Acts as a contrast. Acts is not about the structure of the church. It's not about the way things have been done and how we should follow along. It's not about historical processes that we replicate today. No, the heart of the book of Acts is about the mission, the why, the what of the church, the mission of the followers of Christ. Consider for a second, in, in last week's passage, we began to scratch the surface on the reality that the kingdom of God, the power of Christ, is not intended just for Israel, but it will reach the ends of the earth. This rocked the disciples because they were under the assumption that Christ would restore the kingdom to, to Israel. But Christ said, no, I will restore the kingdom to all of my father's creation. And so the disciples know this. It is fresh in their minds. But with this revelation fresh in their minds, rather than shifting their mission or the way they do things, Peter does his very best uh, to remain faithful. He does. He believes he's being faithful. And so what's he do? He sticks to the tried and true requirements of what it means to be a disciple. The world, as Peter knows it, has completely changed. Peter and the disciples, their, their categories for who Christ is and what he is capable of and what he will do are completely shattered. But in this moment, they lift up the structure of their group above the mission of their group. Even the number 12, right? They need to fill the 12th spot. Even the number 12, it's meant to signify the 12 tribes of Israel. But if Christ is the new Israel and the kingdom is intended for the entire world, and perhaps there should have been a conversation about this, but there isn't, because this is the logic of the before, the logic of in those days, the logic of the in-between time from Christ's ascension to the arrival of the Holy Spirit. Just like how Judas is portrayed here, right? There is no hope for Judas in this passage, no grace shown, no remorse, at least not, not, you know, none that is recorded by Luke, just kind of propping Judas up as the betrayer. And now we all know that Judas uh, took his own life. This is recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. And if, if you've ever dealt with suicide, if you've ever had to confront it, if it's ever come close to you, you know how devastating it can be. And you know how your emotions can run the gamut of anger and frustration to profound sorrow and confusion. And yet, just like facing any death in our lives, if you also know this resurrected, ascended Jesus Christ, then you know that death, every kind of death, every scenario you can imagine, as hard as it is in this life, that there is hope to be found in the midst of grief. You know, as hard as it might be to understand or experience or embody, you know that just as Christ says in the Gospel of Mark, that he is not a God of the dead, but he is a God of the living. Death does not have the last word, but Jesus Christ does. Peter doesn't have the last word on Judas. Jesus Christ does. Last words, as Dr. Jennings puts it, last words no longer belong to us. They no longer belong to those who are telling the story 
but they belong to, they have been seized by Jesus. Even a man like Judas, even a man like Judas, Jesus's power can reach even into his grave. Peter's no doubt beginning to grasp this more and probably more than almost anyone else, and yet he's not quite there. Otherwise, the way he talks about Judas, it likely would be much, much different. It could still be truthful about who Judas was, but it could also be hopeful about who Jesus Christ is and promises to be. But he's still using this logic of the before. He's still on his own journey. And next week, we will see the logic of the before shattered, right? We see the journey. This journey makes significant progress with the arrival of the Holy Spirit. No longer does the logic of the before make any sense to God's people. No longer do we prop up someone we once called a brother as the betrayer and put all guilt and shame on his shoulders. No longer do we speak of the dead without hope. We don't do that because with the gift of the Holy Spirit, with his presence in our world and in our lives, we know that death as we know it is completely changed. We know that failure and brokenness and even the deepest of betrayals we've ever faced, we know that these things are completely changed. Not because of our power, not because of our strength, not because of our holiness or anything like that, but because we rest in the power and the strength of the Holy Spirit, the power and the strength of the resurrected, ascended Jesus. But we're not there yet. Pentecost is on the horizon, but it has not happened yet. The Holy Spirit's arrival is near, but it's not here just yet. And so you might be asking yourself, what is the point of this passage? If what, if what you're hearing is true, then what is it saying to us today? Where's this revolutionary power in these verses? Well, up to this point, things continue to, to try to be controlled by man. In last week's passage, 40 days of ministering with the resurrected Christ, the disciples still try to control their destiny and ask, will the kingdom be restored to Israel? Now, not long after witnessing this Christ ascended to heaven, the disciples still try to control their destiny. And rather than rethink their mission, given everything they've experienced, they remain faithful to the scriptures as they know it in light of wanting to see the kingdom restored where they want it restored. Though this is true in this passage, it will soon no longer be true. These attempts to control destiny, these attempts will soon be interrupted by the Holy Spirit as we'll see next week and beyond. As Jennings puts it, whatever ideas of leadership Peter and the other apostles were imagining, they could not anticipate what God was about to do. A common thing, a selection process, has been placed in an extraordinary setting in the upper room before Pentecost. From this moment forward, every common thing of the disciples of Jesus, every administrative act, every bureaucratic gesture exists in the posture of waiting and standing in the shadow cast by the Holy Spirit and within the necessary work of prayer. You see, I've, I've been talking a lot of trash on Peter and the disciples, but even with Peter and the disciples' logic of the before, even with their desire to try and preserve a certain expectation for the disciples, what, what do they do? They take that step in faith, 
They go to the upper room, they wait, and they pray. No matter how Peter portrays Judas, no matter how this selection process goes, right? No matter if Bersabbas or Matthias gets the spot when they're doing this, when the disciples took that step in faith back to Jerusalem, when they go back to the holy upper room, when they gather with men and women, what do they do? Verse 14, they devoted themselves to prayer together. And that word together, man, read it with the start of verse 14, because verse 14 says, all these with one accord. These men and women were praying with a sense of unity, with one mind, with one accord. And they were doing this together as a community, as a body. And you have to imagine this was persevering prayer, prayer that they were devoted to. You know, I think for us as Hope Hell's Kitchen, I think we can look to this passage and actually find a lot of guidance for ourselves as a community today. We can hold things in tension. We can be honest about the brokenness of people, even of the disciples. We can be honest about our history. We can be honest about how we approach incredibly hard situations like death or like leadership. And in the midst of all that, we can also celebrate the faithfulness of these people. And we can celebrate the bright spots of what devotion to God looks like. We can do both of these things. It does not need to be either or. As I mentioned, Peter is on a journey. In those days, he's on this journey. And so are we today. And on top of everything, the guidance we see here is the power of prayer. And we see the power of waiting. The disciples pray and they wait, they wait and they pray. They're they're praying and they're waiting for 10 days, waiting in this in-between period before the Holy Spirit finally arrives and completely changes the world as they know it. In last week's passage, Christ tells the disciples before he ascends into heaven in verse 8, he says, you will receive the power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. They don't know when this is, and yet with trust in the Savior, they go back to Jerusalem and they pray and they wait because Christ has promised them this revolutionary power. You know, you and me, we're in a similar in-between time. We've already received this power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has arrived. We're on the other side of Pentecost. This power has been given to us. In Romans 8, we are told that the power of the Spirit resides in those who confess and profess Christ to be their Lord and Savior. The power is here. It resides in us. And so what are we waiting for then? If we're in an in-between period, what are we waiting for? We're waiting for the second return of Christ, for the revolutionary work of the Holy Spirit to manifest itself in the cosmic and divine restoration of all of God's creation, for the ascended Christ who is watching over us at this very moment from his heavenly throne, for this Christ to descend once more to his people and to redeem and to restore and to have the final say. Verse 11 from last week's passage, we are reminded Christ ascends into heaven And we are reminded that he will come back. And so we wait and we pray and we pray and we wait. And we do this with great risk because of the uncertainty that awaits us. Consider Matthias, who's filling the shoes of Judas, the betrayer. He's stepping into this role in front of his friends, in front of 120 other people, and he has no idea what the future holds. But he does know that in this moment, he is called to one job, to pray and to wait. And so are we today. And guess what? 
when we accept this job, when we accept this assignment, we may not get recognition. Matthias, who you might think is going to be celebrated and remembered throughout history, this is the last time he's mentioned in the New Testament. But that doesn't matter. We're not following Christ so that our names are written in history. We follow Christ because our names are already written in heaven, as we're told in Luke chapter 10. And don't worry, we also don't follow Christ because we're perfect, because we're better than Peter. Quite the contrary. We'll mess up. Peter messes up. Oh, boy, does Peter mess up. We'll see Peter mess up more throughout our study of Acts. And we've seen Peter mess up plenty already if you read the stories in the Gospels. And yet, what else do we know about Peter? In Matthew 16, Jesus tells Peter that he will build the church on him and on his witness, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. This is the same Peter who Jesus called you of little faith. This is the same Peter who denied knowing Jesus three times right before Jesus was arrested and beaten and crucified. And this is the same Peter who, with the full knowledge and the literal experience of Christ's resurrection and ascension, still tries to control his destiny and the destiny of the disciples. And this is the same Peter who, fully aware of his brokenness and how short he falls in his pursuit of being faithful, this is the same Peter who keeps leading, who keeps praying, who keeps waiting. We'll see him continue to do this, and we'll see him continue to fall short in the coming weeks and months. And Jesus, knowing all of this well ahead of time, before any of these things happen with Peter, Jesus, knowing all of these things, still uses Peter to spread the good news of his work, still says that the church will be built on him and his witness. This is the power not of Peter, but the power of this God that we gather to worship. This is truly not about the acts of the apostles or these disciples, but this is about the acts of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of this God that we pray for and that we wait for in our own current in-between time. And so as we pray and as we wait, we come to the Lord's table together as a community and we celebrate who this Jesus Christ was and who he is today and who he promises to be when he returns to our world. Last week, I shared a quote from Dr. Jennings, and it's one I keep returning to as I study the book of Acts. And I think it's one that we'll probably remind ourselves of week in and week out. But he says about Acts, he says that the Holy Spirit seems to always be pressing the disciples, the followers of Jesus, pressing them to go to those to whom they would in fact strongly prefer never to share space, never to share a meal, and never to share life together. I've been thinking about this reality a lot as I think about Peter in this morning's passage. You know, Peter could have pushed himself in, in, into an incredibly uncomfortable situation, not by dismissing Judas and his betrayal of Christ. We, we can't do that. But perhaps by imploring his friends and brothers and sisters to remember who Christ is and to anticipate the power that Christ wields, even in the life, even in the death of a man like Judas. He could have pushed himself into a space that might have began to dismantle the structure of the disciples in order to focus on the mission of the disciples, in order to honor the 120 people, the men and women who gathered together. And even though he doesn't, God still uses him 
for his glory. Even though Peter doesn't do these things right here, right now, we know that the Holy Spirit will. We know that the Holy Spirit will descend upon these people and will completely shatter their expectations and plans, transform their communities, shatter the categories that they hold for what it means to live in community, what it means to do ministry, what it means to be faithful. The people of God today, you and me, we have the power of the Holy Spirit And if this is true, then we should be finding ourselves pushed more and more into community, into situations, into hard conversations, into truths, into reality with those we would have never considered before. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. And in our church and in the church that stretches to the ends of the earth, there may be no more tangible manifestation of this revolutionary power than the unity that is represented at the Lord's table. Unity that reconciles betrayal, unity that heals wounds, unity that brings God's people together in communion with one another as we pray and as we wait with expectant, active hope for the return of Christ. And this power rests not in us shifting or casting blame, but it rests in the Holy Spirit who invites us to confess, who invites us to repent, not shift blame, but to look at ourselves and to begin to reconcile the broken relationships in our own lives at this very moment. The Lord's table is a table of reconciliation, a table that reminds us that Christ has the final word, that Christ's power reaches into the grave and defeats death, that Christ's power totally reorients our purpose, our mission, that Christ's power exists here today, now. And so, We'll do this uh, each and every week before taking the Lord's Supper. We'll spend a moment in reflection. Reflection that pushes us into confession and repentance. Reflection that begins to push us toward reconciliation. For 60 seconds, I invite you to do this. And there's no formula here. If you're comfortable with it, offer a prayer to God. Begin to confess the brokenness that you have experience the brokenness that you have been part of, that you have maybe caused. Repent of these things. If you're, if you're comfortable with that, offer that prayer to God. And if you're unsure what that means, if you're not ready to speak to God, sit and do your best to clear your mind and to see what God puts in there, to see what word or what phrase or what truth he might be revealing to you this morning. And to help with this, you don't have to use it, but I'll put up a slide Uh, on the screen to help you with this reflection that reminds us that we are not left alone in this time of confession, in this time of repentance, in this time of reflection. We're not left alone in our missteps or brokenness. Peter wasn't left alone and neither are we. We are not left alone in our past, but we are invited into a future that is guided by and revolutionized by the Holy Spirit. Feel free to reflect on this slide if you'd like, and then uh, we'll come back in just a few moments to take the Lord's Supper together.